Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to Who's Talking, the podcast where we talk about all things Doctor Who. I'm Michael. And I'm Maggie. And this week we're going to be talking about the Doctor Who Easter special, Legend of the Sea Devils. In a swashbuckling special adventure, the Doctor, Yaz, and Dan come face to fin with one of the Doctor's oldest adversaries, the Sea Devils. Why has the legendary pirate queen Madame Ching come searching for a lost treasure? What terrifying forces lurk beneath the oceans of the 19th century? And did Yaz really have to dress Dan up as a pirate? Yeah, she did. She really did. Let's start with just broad overview thoughts on the episode. Where, where are where are we? What are we thinking? I know you and I both sort of are on the same page with this, which is rather different page than some of the internet might be. I'm just really glad that we don't record these podcasts the day the episodes air. It's been, what, three days? Is that how math works? I believe it's been three days, yes. Great. So I both of us have mellowed out some since Sunday. <laughs> usually, usually Michael and I don't talk about the episodes right after they air um, because we wait to talk about them for this podcast. And that, that did not happen. happen on Sunday. We absolutely went utterly insane over Facebook Messenger. <laughs> I, uh... The first thing I said to Maggie was, well, at least Doctor Who Redacted was good. <laughs> but um, I, I I, didn't like the episode. That That's putting it lightly. I didn't hate it. It is definitely up there with the most disappointing episodes of this. For sure. Uh, of the 13th Doctor era. I just, I think it is, it is difficult to have a strong emotion on something that was boring. It was so so dull like i think it's very quite audacious of them for the first sentence of the summary to say in a swashbuckling adventure when there are very few pirates and very little adventure i came to this after listening to all of my friends go on about our flag means death which is a great show and everyone should watch it and i'm thinking okay you know you've got your queer pirate romp guess what i'm gonna have a queer pirate romp of my own there was no romping. There was like half a pirate, and there was negative queer, which isn't to and which isn't to say that the queer representation that was in the episode was negative, as in like it was bad. It just wasn't in a lot of the episode. It wasn't. We'll get to the negatives in a second because we we obviously have some thoughts, but. They're good things. So, uh, Maggie, why don't you talk about the first good thing? Because I know you're gonna you're gonna have a lot to say about this. I don't actually have a ton, but y'all know at this point that I am a big fan of costumes. Um, and every time they that there is an opportunity for anybody in Doctor Who to wear a costume as opposed to their modern day clothes, I get very excited. Which is something that really excited me about this episode. And I was not disappointed on the costumes. They were very pretty. They're colorful. They're fun. For the most part, from my Googling, they are historically accurate. Although, um, I mean, obviously not Dan's. Dan's is a... It, Dan's came from Party City. But, um... 
What I think is interesting is what they tend to do with the Doctor when they have her in different clothes is they tend to lean her style more masculine, which is what they actually did in this episode. They put her in men's clothing. And they tend to pair that, or they paired it in this episode, at least, with colors that we as an audience would traditionally think of as feminine. Um, I don't know enough about color theory in um, China in 1807 to tell you whether or not they were considered masculine or feminine in China. Um, But I will just say that that's sort of like an interesting just a way to pair that and to play with, play up the sort of androgyny of the Doctor. And then I think it's really nice that they went out of their way to, as much as they were touting this as a pirate adventure, they went out of their way to make sure that these were clothes that were specific to South China at the time, as opposed to just saying, oh, pirates we're going to dress everybody the way that we're dressing Dan. Instead, they dress Dan for the laugh, and he's the only one who's dressed as what we in the Western part of the world would traditionally ascribe to pirates. Um, Because you think pirates, you think the folks who are in the West Indies, as opposed to pirates existing all over the world, as Madame Ching did. And another, just as a final thought, science fiction, particularly space science fiction, has a heavy tendency to rely on Asian influence in their costuming to present a sort of otherworldly, exotic look. Uh, You see this, I think, first first, uh, thing that comes to my mind is, like, Firefly. Um, I think at least from my perspective, and to clarify, I am a white woman, so this could be wrong, Um, but I firmly believe that this show and this episode managed to avoid that. It was accurate to not just the culture, but to the time period, and it didn't feel like they were trying to use the costumes as some sort of attempt at flair or influence. They were using it as setting and making themselves acceptable for the setting. And you can see that by when Yaz specifically apologizes for dressing Dan like a pirate when she meets Madame Ching. She does apologize. So it shows that these are characters who are taking their appearance into account. And that's where I'm coming from on that. Um, But I thought just because of the history that science fiction has with that, I thought I would just point that out as my concluding thought. I I, I would agree. It felt like it didn't feel like the episode was trying to communicate a sense of otherness with anyone's costumes. It was just, this is where we are. This is what we wear. And that's that. Which I think is nice because like Maggie said, a lot of times in you know, genre shows, that isn't the case. And I think that sort of works to go back, your point works to go back to what I was saying about the androgyny as well. It's not to, there. there's no otherness. They're not creating some sort of uniqueness to the female doctor that is 
hyper feminine and out of place. Nothing about what she has worn on this show feels inherently out of place. It's just slightly more feminine than what the men would wear, but it's not something that the men just would wouldn't wear. On a different note, I thought the action, I mean, there wasn't a lot of action, but the action that was there was pretty good. I will say, according to some BBC America behind the scenes, Jodie Whittaker did do her own stunts for this. She did. I was watching their, 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 their Doctor Who YouTube channel put out their, their, you know, their usual, like, behind the scenes videos they drop after the episodes air. And she was apparently doing a good chunk of the stunts, which is really cool. I always like it when the actors do their own stunts. If I were ever to be a professional actor, I would want to do as many of my own stunts as I could. Right? Like, that seems like that's where the fun would be, is is doing that. In particular, I thought the sword fight uh, between all of the human characters and the sea devils was really fun. It was the closest the episode came to, like, feeling really swashbuckly, but... But and so it was just like it was that shot of like adrenaline that the middle of the episode really needed, and it was super fun. I'm always here for a sword fight. The editing didn't necessarily show it off in the easiest to follow way, but that's pretty typical of like most TV shows. That's not like a Doctor Who specific problem. I did, I, 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 no point was I like, I don't know what's happening anymore. It was a sword fight. I thought it was really fun. And um, more sword fights, please. Always more sword fights. I thought we knew that with, with Amy Pond and the Black... What was it? The Black Dot episode? Black Spot. Yeah, I don't know. I just love a good sword fight. And um, I thought the beginning, while... Again, like, the editing really hurt it some... The uh, Madam Ching right at the beginning had some really cool stuff to do. And then uh, I, I enjoyed the Sea Devil kind of massacring the village. It was kind of the one moment where I, I felt really threatened by that Sea Devil. And I don't know, it was it was a, a an exhilarating way to start an episode. Yeah, I just could have used a little bit more action. But the action that was there was a delight. And and it was kind of tickling that swashbuckling pirate romp feeling that I was, like, really wanting from the episode. So I liked that. There's a moment where Yaz and the Doctor swing onto the ship on ropes. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, yes, we're getting the pirate stuff. I was so hyped. It lasted a second. And they started talking again. I'm not saying I need to go rewatch the Pirates of the Caribbean series, but I am saying I definitely have a friend who would do that with me. Um, I'm just saying you could watch Our Flag Means Death instead. Wink, wink. Um, I thought the VFX was also pretty solid. I mean, like, there were definitely some moments that were, to put it nicely, questionable. There, There's, like, two bits in particular that I'm thinking of that <laughs> were kind of wonky. Spill the and, tea, and Michael. It's involving the sea devil. It's involving the sea devil ship in the way that it like flies, and it always looks extremely fake. And then the way that um the sea devil jumped off of one ship to the other, and it was just like it's like somebody took the little image of the sea devil and like shrunk him and just yeeted him off the screen. It was very funny. 
I think the sea, the sea devil ship fl- uh, flew like the flying Dutchman in SpongeBob. Yeah, it was um, it was very cartoony, which could have been fun. I was actually very excited for it. Yeah, look, the fact that they had a flying spaceship and didn't do anything with it is so upsetting. It's to me. so upsetting. Not a, not a spaceship, a a, a a ship ship. They could have done more with that. And I'm still not really sure how that ship connected to the thing with the teeth that ate things. We'll get we'll get to that, or you know, <laughs> won't because the episode didn't. But we'll talk we'll talk about that. But uh, aside from those two kind of questionable moments, I thought that the VFX was pretty pretty solid. They definitely spoiled all of the best looking shots in the trailer, which I mean I guess is what you do. But like the, the, the trailer definitely sets you up for maybe a better looking episode than it actually was which is why maybe you don't maybe you save some of the nice shots because then everybody thinks that that is indicative of the entire episode and and not indicative of uh, a few specific moments when most of the episode is in like contained locations in the dark yeah, you don't put your best stuff in the trailer. You you use the trailer to tease that the best is yet to come. But 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 aside from that, um, when a lot of it was good, uh, I know it sounds like I'm having to like convince myself of that. But I mean, there there were some moments on the boat when they were on Madame Ching's boat that I thought looked really good, especially when you consider the budget that Doctor Who was filmed on. Like, I keep mentioning Our Flag Means Death, and that's just because it's literally a pirate show that came out, like, three weeks ago. So it's very difficult to talk about a pirate show without talking about the pirate show that is in the cultural zeitgeist at the moment. That show had a, not like a huge budget, but a big enough budget that they could afford the same kind of uh, technology that The Mandalorian uses, where they have those LCD screens on the walls instead of green screen and so they have the background actually like in camera that's being computer computer generated on a screen um doctor who can't afford that for you know very understandable reasons so in light of them not being able to access such technology a lot of the ship stuff looked really good like the the sky even though the sky like intentionally looked kind of fake because they were making a point of there's something wonky going on with the sky it still looked like believable and the lighting was true to what it should have been you know given the sky being wonky the the point i'm trying to make is that while some of the special effects were not necessarily like flashy a lot of them worked really well for what they were and what they were trying to be yeah that makes sense and even the sea devils sometimes the sea devils i have a hit or miss on how effective i thought that that costume was as like a prosthetic it's not actually a prosthetic it's a apparently it was resting on the shoulders of the actors it's actually like a headpiece but it looks good sometimes and looks not so good other times and that's you know to be expected when you've got that kind of a piece but I think that when it worked, it worked really well. And that's kind of all you can ask for for something like that. Because, I mean, even, like, like Carvanista was the same way, where, like, there were times where he looked fantastic. And then there were times where 
there were times where it was a dog suit. Yeah. And, you know, and that's that's kind of the fun of Doctor Who. It's like the monsters are very close to working, but often like are just a little wonky. Honestly, I think that's part of the joy of sci-fi and just as as a genre in general is you allow yourself that suspension of disbelief and you get to to play with it and to an extent you're you're playing make-believe that being said i really do wish their mouths had moved that's fair but uh that's beside the point um so i think the thing that you and i both liked the most was the yaz and doctor stuff uh, kind of the way that you know it went underneath a lot of the episode and then kind of came to a head in a not necessarily original way, but in a way that uh, at least I felt was kind of poignant. It was satisfactory. Um, it, satif- it satisfied what had been running throughout the episode. Yeah, and I think it built nicely on what was sort of set up in Eve of the Daleks. Like they they didn't they didn't just introduce the romance and then ignore it, which I think is what some people were afraid would happen. It's very much like. If there is one kind of plot or character beat that is like the through line for the episode, it's probably that one. No, that's true. And I will say that while I personally would have liked an episode full of just the doctor trying to figure out her feelings and, you know, having that pining where I go, oh my god, just talk about your feelings already. I am glad that they just jumped to the talking about their feelings, that... That never happens. So I understand that that's a convention of them only having three episodes to wrap this up. But but I will say, um, while my little shipper heart was a little bit heartbroken at the Doctor rejecting Yaz at the end, the fact of the matter is, while it was a rejection, it was not a I don't love you. It was very much, we can't be together because I do care about you in that way that I can't really talk about. Because if I put words to it and I make this thing a thing, then it has the power to hurt me. And that's something that I think is interesting because you've got sort of the whole through line of Doctor Who Flux has been the Doctor being faced with this lack of control of her destiny, of her past, of her present, of her future. And rejecting that lack of control and deciding to write her own path and choosing to do things her way and throw, throwing that the watch fob into the TARDIS and moving forward. And yet what she says to Yaz is, can we just stay in the present here right now and not move forward? That's what she asks of Yaz. And I think that's fascinating because you've got a whole season of this character growth, but you also see... That it's not like a linear thing for her. That it's... It's not. And it's not something that can be applied to all aspects of everything. And that's that's true about people, is people grow in different areas. They don't grow in every area all at once. And she she has these walls for a reason. She has felt this heartbreak before and this episode had a lot of absolutely fantastic parallels with uh ten and rose which really helped to play up this inevitable tragedy of 
their romance, whether or not it is a romance right now, their romantic feelings, and it's going to end in pain for them. Which is just the tragedy of the doctor-companion situation at all. Most doc- most doctor's companions do not leave of their own volition. Or the doctor that they're attached to changes. Yeah. You know, Graham and Ryan, that was an exception. That's not the rule. Especially in modern Who. It was, it was a little bit more common in classic Who for a companion to kind of just leave. But modern Who, I think just by the nature of the way that modern television works requires like exits to be an event and and people seem to equate event with like tragedy like it has to be extra dramatic when they're leaving so you know somebody has to be trapped in an alternate universe or have their mind wiped or get sent back into the past or die but not really die you know or or whatever the case may be yeah but i do i do want to say that what's really nice about it From the perspective of looking at this as queer representation, what you have is, first off, the doctor reciprocates Yaz's feelings. That's that's made clear. They're not doing the thing that Once Upon a Time did, where it's like, can we interpret this in a way that's straight? Perhaps. And the fact that they're paralleling it with Ten and Rose puts it at the same level of importance as Ten and Rose's same level of importance to the Doctor, and it should be the same level of importance to us as the fans. And the fact that they they do that when so many so many other shows have a tendency to have the queer couples play second fiddle to the straight couples is really, really powerful, particularly in a show that we know is not just popular, but means something to so many people. I also think it's um, on on a similar line that with the exception of River, who was never really a companion, this is also the first time since Rose they've done this kind of at all, which I think also adds to kind of the importance of it in a on a character level of this is the first time uh, for a doctor and companion that it's been this kind of an intense emotional feeling for them you know yeah i mean a lot of people can say what they want about the doctor's companions always being in love with the doctor or whatever because you do you do see that consistently you see the this sort of one-sided romance you see martha was in love with the doctor amy was infatuated with the doctor for a little bit Clara was a little bit in love with the doctor and then the doctor was very in love with Clara but she didn't feel the same way. And so you you get that a lot. What you don't get is this 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 mutual connection where they are on not the same page because they're decidedly not because the doctor does have to reject Yaz, but they're on the same level. Yeah. Because they could have just played this off the same way they've played off Clara's feelings or the Doctor's feelings in between the two of them or the way they played off Martha's feelings or Amy's. But they didn't. They didn't. They chose to actually make this into a thing. And to make that choice when you're already... This is already the first female Doctor, so you've already got that sort of worry that people are going to try to be too cautious in the writer's room 
and it just it's really exciting to to see this on television i mean this isn't something that's on netflix this is this is a show that airs on a broadcast network in its country of origin and there's so many people out there who equate just that kind of acknowledgement of affections there's no hand holding there's no kissing there's no anything further than kissing but that level of intimacy just that acknowledgement of feelings is considered sexual and vulgar and inappropriate for children in so many places and just to have this be on a family-friendly show on a family-friendly network airing at a family-friendly time meant to be watched by families it's beautiful and it's important and nobody on the internet from what i can see and nobody that i know is under some false impression that this is going to end happily ever after you know this is the doctor and her companion this is not going to not going to end nicely they're all they're both leaving the show it can't end nicely like the doctor says in the episode i mean it's it's going to end in hurt but the thing about life is that it must be lived. You know, there is no staying in the present. There is no going on in one moment continuously forever. And that's the beauty of it. And that's the beauty that we get from the episode, from the ship, from the show itself. And then amidst all of this sad, we get a phone call. And Diane is back. Diane's misses her friend she said a lot of things in anger and she pushed him away and then he went off on crazy adventures with the doctor that he can't tell anybody about and he wants to tell his friend about them and she realizes at like the same moment that she she misses that and she wants to hear about them and to hear from him and it's this really like understated sweet moment that even if it's not like intended although i can't imagine it's not but if it's even if it's not as explicitly like romantic as like the doctor and yaz stuff it's still just such a a nice moving bit of emotional intimacy between characters because that's the thing you know you don't just have romantic love as important love a big through line of series 11 and 12 was developing that love between Graham and Ryan, that familial bond. And so having this friendship bond between Diane and Dan being created and messed with and put back together is, it's very nice. It, it might develop, because it, it started to develop before all of, you know, Flux happened into something different than friendship, but... Uh, it might they might get back to that point and they might not, but I think that's also kind of the beauty in it that they are at that they're at that point where they they just miss each other and they want that connection back and that's just such a it's such a human thing and like I think all of those scenes right at the end are it, it just features some absolutely gorgeous acting from from all three of the leads. Oh, 100%. And that's really some of the best acting that John Bishop gets to do yeah. in the episode. So yeah, I think I think both we're we're kind of on the same page about 
those those Yaz and Doctor and, and Dan scenes. They're just I could have used an entire episode of just that with like no plot and probably had a better time. Yes, absolutely. I could have God, if they could have if they could have given us like five minutes more of Dan in this episode, anything more of Dan in this episode, aside from just being the butt of a joke and then having a sweet little moment with Diana at the end. And also shipping Thasmin somewhere in the middle. You know, and, and that I think that segues nicely into uh, a conversation about the the parts of the episode that did not work as well. Which, to be fair, is a lot of the episode. But before before we get even get into that, I do want to say that I think this episode has a lot of kind of the same problems that a lot of uh, the episodes that haven't been so good lately have had. And it's it's not that the episode doesn't have good ideas or good or, or a good premise. It's that the execution of them is lacking. So, like, for example, this episode, you've got a historical pirate. You have the return of a fan-favorite classic monster who has apparently only been in the show, like, twice prior to now, but is a fan-favorite nonetheless. Yet, it just doesn't quite come together. And I think the issue is just that, it, for me... And I don't, Maggie, you may or may not quite agree with this. I just felt like the episode didn't know what it wanted to focus on. It has like a few different ideas, any one of which could have been the backbone of an episode. But it tries to make all of them equally important. And so none of them are important. Yeah, and that's something that we've seen consistently Throughout Flux in particular with all the different yeah. storylines. Where at some point a subplot should be a subplot and not on the same level as the A plot. Not to not to get all right or technical here, but No, and that's a, another thing, is that this episode was co written. So it's something that you would have sort of assumed that it was going to be a little less Chibnall. But it it wasn't. It it was it was Chibnall. Chibnall all the way down, which is sort of, it's sort of unfortunate because this is one of Ella Rhodes' first uh, major writing credits, and as a person who enjoys seeing people do things in the world, I applaud that. I mean, one of your first major writing credits is on freaking Doctor Who. I'm That's awesome. And... It, there was nothing inherently bad about this. There, she's not a bad writer. The episode was just boring, and that's not. I feel bad because that's not. In, in, that's not inherently on her, because she's not necessarily the one who outlined the episode. A part of me wonders if, if, don't get me wrong. I don't. I think the script has some fundamental issues, but I. A part of me wonders if some of the just the complete like disconnected feeling of a lot of the scenes isn't because the episode got butchered in an edit oh the episode for sure got butchered in, ed in an edit because it feels like there's just things that are missing it feels like there are entire scenes that are just just gone especially in the first half 
Especially with Madame Ching. I mean, you've got this fearsome pirate queen, and they reduce her to being a source of exposition, and they have her fall into motherhood, which isn't inherently bad. I want to make that clear. But also, this is supposed to be a pirate romp. And to make a fierce pirate queen whole thing is being sad about her kids being taken and then deciding to adopt another kid at the end it sort of it feels very reductive in a way it doesn't feel so much celebrating women and motherhood and all that it feels very much a woman's place is to be a mother and that i had so much issue with particularly particularly when it came to the final battles with Ji-hun they're using this other pirate when they've spent the majority of the time advertising that they're going to be dealing with this fearsome pirate queen and she's going to do fearsome pirate queen awesome stuff and then she didn't and then they handed it off to the male, the male pirate instead and it's like really is that is that really the narrative that you want to tell here because there's fantastic possibilities to be an awesome fearsome pirate queen mother but if in order to be an awesome fearsome pirate queen you have to do nothing let men do all the work and essentially take care of the kids i don't want it it's it's one of those these those those two ideas that she is both a fearsome pirate queen and also a mother are, are not inherently you know at odds with each other you, They're not. You could, they could easily coexist if you gave – it's one of the only times I should have given something equal importance in the episode. Like of all the <laughs> things to give equal importance to, maybe, maybe that's what you should have given equal importance to. I, I think, but I, I think that whole thing is just indicative of a bigger problem, which is that none of the characters in this episode, including to a certain extent the main cast, have like any characterization outside of – Yaz and, De- or Yaz and uh, the Doctor's evolving relationship, right? Outside of that specific thing. What does anybody do? In what is anybody episode? doing? What does anybody want? Like, there, there, there's a hand-wavy thing that Madame Ching is looking for. The, there's this, this boat that's sunk and the treasure in it so that she can buy back her crew and her children. That the Doctor and Dan and Yaz may have also been trying to find. Like, I'm not even sure why they showed up on that beach in the first place. They were several hundred years off from where they were supposed to be going, but they never said where they were supposed to be going. Yeah, well, they mentioned at the end of Eve of the Daleks, they mentioned, like, jokingly, we're going to find the lost treasure of the Flor de la something. I don't remember. But it's the same ship that uh, is in this episode. Presumably they were teasing that that's what, you know, they were going to do. But I don't – in that episode, it didn't feel like that's what was happening, that they were going – they were literally going off to go do that. It felt like the, the the kind of thing where, like, the doctor's, like, telling Rose, we're going to go to Barcelona now. Or promising Amy they're going to Rio. Yeah, the thing you say at the end of the episode to end the episode. And, and, and the impression you get when they arrive in this episode is not that they were looking for the boat, but that they were going – they were looking for a beach, and I guess they wanted a. Yeah, Chinese and you get the impression beach. that they've been that they've been traveling a good amount of time between between these episodes as well. Enough that the doctor has made that this is not the doctor's first mistake in getting them to where they need to be. 
and so they they just kind of arrive and uh madam ching has just that very basic motivation but it's it's all entirely communicated via expository dialogue and and it's difficult to care about that when she doesn't do a whole lot of anything else and then the sea devils have a very generic humans bad must destroy them motivation but then they're like their but their way of destroying the humans is destroying the entire world which completely conflicts with who they are as like the reason they're mad at humans is because humans were destroying the world and so in order to get rid of humans they're going to destroy the world so yes and no the the sea devils have in the past tried to kind of terraform the earth to be a little bit more aquatic because they are aquatic creatures from a prehistoric era where water was a little bit more prevalent and so it is not necessarily kind of out of character for them to go about destroying humans by you know making more water which is sort of what they're going for it's just that the episode explains this incredibly poorly and and you don't really realize in the moment that that's what they're going for I don't think the episode did a good job of setting up the sea devils at all, because most of my understanding of the sea devils just comes from conversations with you the last couple months, because you watch Classic Who. And to be fair, I I will take some accountability here in that I was slightly misremembering the sea devils. I, I did a little bit of research after watching the episode. They have historically been second fiddle in both of their stories. In their first appearance, they are summoned... Not necessarily some, but like awoken by the master, and the master's kind of trying to manipulate them into, you know, battling the humans because he wants to mess around with the third doctor because that's literally the master's MO every time he appears in that era is, how can I mess around with three today? And then the second time they appear, they are kind of just glorified lackeys for the Silurians, who, to be fair, are... The Silurians and the Sea Devils are sister species, which this episode doesn't reference at all. Which is really interesting considering uh, Chibnall is the one who wrote the two-parter that brought the Silurians into Modern Who. And he did a really good job with that one at explaining, you know, why the Silurians don't like humans, you know, and, and what what their plan is for taking control of the earth again like that episode is what this one should have been in terms of what it did for the silurians you know and it's what it could have been because we know like obviously chibnall is capable of making that episode if he made that episode yeah but this episode like in terms of the sea devil characterization it basically relies on the audience knowing who they are except they haven't been on screen in nearly 40 years. So even the people who know who they are might not know who they are that well. I mean, the Doctor doesn't even do the thing the Doctor normally does when a returning villain arrives and explain to the companion who they are. She's just like, oh, they're the Sea Devils. And that's, that was the extent of it. I noticed there, there was a lot of like, Things the Sea Devils don't do was what kept getting said. Like, the Sea Devils don't normally have a ship. 
these aren't the clothes the sea devils normally wear. Like, a lot of that kept The sea devils said. are normally confrontational. Yeah, and it's like, okay, but then what are they? And at this point, if you're going to write a monster who is so completely different than what the sea devils normally are, why use the sea devils in the first place? Yeah. Why not just make a new monster? Yeah, and it's it's kind of a shame because I think the actual, like, performance from the sea devils was fine. It's the same actor who plays Carvanista as the main sea devil, and he does a great job. Well, of course he does. He, he you know, is perfectly sinister, and and I, I, I very much enjoyed uh, some of the sass he was giving 13 when, when they were in the, in the sea devil lair. And he, he, especially that one bit where he was like, uh, you talk so much to buy time, and she's like... Uh, didn't yes. need the psychoanalysis right now. Like, that was funny. I just think there was such a missed opportunity at, at the idea of pirate, sci- or pirate sea devils driving a pirate ship. And, and it just, that's not what the episode's about. Why introduce that if you're not going to do anything with it? Like, you, you advertise the episode as a pirate romp. Have your... Your returning villains specifically dressed like pirates and 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 driving a flying pirate ship and then don't do anything with that. There's no like ship battle like like why why did Madame Ching's ship and the uh, the sea devil ship not like fire cannonballs at each other or something? At the end of the day, what you ultimately end up with is the fact that they're pirates in name only they are it's madam ching in name only what you get is seafarers you could have any type of seafarers you want you could have people who just randomly showed up one day with a little dinghy and said let's see if we can sail the world you can have the british royal navy it doesn't really matter it just didn't feel intentional None of it, it it was like they were like, I want to bring back the Sea Devils, but how? Like, it's like they didn't have a story, they just had a a goal. And I, I'm not saying this is what happened, but it's it's how it feels to an audience member. And, and it's like they had to, like, reverse engineer a story to justify the thing they wanted, which was Sea Devils. But they didn't even use Sea Devils the way Sea Devils were supposed to be used because they kept making a point about the fact that the sea devils were not doing what they yeah, were supposed I mean, yeah, to be doing. There, there's that too, but um, I don't know. And it's not helped by the fact that simultaneously nothing happens in the episode, but also too much happens. And then there's the there's the um, there is the thing that may or may not be a ship and may or may not be a serpent that is in, written in my notes as teeth creature. <laughs> I, I want to come back to Sea Creature, but but I want to because it'll segue into Sea Creature, I promise. And that teeth and creature. that's Teeth Creature. You're right. And and that's <laughs> there's no mystery in this episode. No, it's just it tells you what's happening. This is this is it's it's basically an episode of Dora the Explorer in terms of how laid out everything it's is. It's like reading a Wikipedia plot summary of an episode. Because like you can you can imagine all the ways they could have told this exact plot, but made it interesting. It's it's just there are things you could do 
that make it a like a dynamic mystery where all the characters are working together to solve the mystery of what is happening and prevent you know the the thing from happening and then there's what the episode did which is characters go from point a to point b hear a monologue explaining what's happening then go to point c and hear a monologue explaining what's happening and then go to point d and hear another monologue explaining what's happening and it's like why should i care about any of this even the teeth creature that's swallowing the tardis it's like what is how does this why and it's like how does that relate to the flying ship even though apparently they're a connected thing because they're both the the flying creature may or may not be a ship it has a lair inside of it i think i think and i could be wrong cuz like i don't know i think what it is is that the creature is the lair and the ship is inside the creature but can be like uh, i can't think of the word ejected. I'm looking for. yeah ejected out of the creature because it kind of like rises up like almost like a like a blowhole like a whale blowhole when it like rises like like a singer appearing from the little bubble in the stage you know yeah. at the beginning of the concert and it's like but it's like why why i mean i like i know the specific why the creature exists is that apparently it can like find the MacGuffin they're looking for because the creature is the thing that's tracking the keystone. But like Teeth Creature Ex Machina. Yeah, but like why couldn't the lair have just been on the ship and they had like a magic compass or something? Because then it would be too much Pirates of the Caribbean. Okay, but I mean like at least it would have been piratey. I know. So, I mean, I'm with you. I don't... What's the creature doing? What is it? Why is the creature here? It, it's not even... They don't even use the creature. Like, they they make you think... I am getting mad. <laughs> they make you think it's going to be like a kraken. Because, like, it at first appears and it, like, attacks that tiny little dinghy. And then doesn't do anything violent again. Or I guess it starts to attack Madame Ching's ship at one point, doesn't it? I think it just swims menacingly and you just sort of... Imagine the Jaws theme in the background that isn't there. Yeah. But it's like, if you're going to have a giant, you know, kaiju creature, why is it not doing anything? If you're going to have any of these creatures, why are they not doing anything? Nothing, nobody does anything in this episode. It is very much just an, I guess that happened in this episode kind of episode where it's like, okay, whatever. Which goes back to, it might be the fault of the editors. It might be an editing thing. Yeah. Because a lot of that felt like I had missed huge chunks of information that I was like, why am I supposed to care about this? Okay, what does this mean? How is the teeth creature also the lair and also the ship? When I tell you that I did not feel like I had to rewatch one of the Flux episodes to understand the plot but i felt that i had to watch this one a second time on the same day it aired because i wasn't entirely sure i'd gotten everything but it it turned out i had and it's because the missing stuff was actually just missing i think that's a it's a bad omen because i mean there were some confusing flux episodes there were indeed but at least I felt like I under, but it, I felt like I understood what happened most of the time, or or that I was supposed to not understand what was happening. 
this one, like you said, it felt it felt like stuff was missing. And so at the end of the day, it didn't end up being inherently a bad episode because it was just too boring to be bad. It, this was not a love and monsters. This was it wasn't a sleep no more. It was a honestly, it was a curse of the black spot. It was a black spot. I I still found Curse of the Black Spot way more interesting than this. It is, but I think it's it's you know it's just, it's a middle of the road episode. It's like okay, that happened. But I also, guess. this is the this is the Doctor's penultimate episode. This should not be a filler episode where you look at it and go, "What did I just watch?" This is no Waters of Mars. This needs to hype you up. It's it was. I mean, it was a mess. I don't think there's any nicer way of putting that. It was a mess. It was. It was an absolute mess. There were there were good things, and I but I don't think the good things did enough to smooth over the 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 mess. And there's nothing that's like compelling me to watch 13's last episode. I don't have to know why something happened. I don't have to know what what's next. It's I'm going to level with you guys. When I watched the finale, in addition to just seeing how does the Doctor regenerate, the only thing I'm really in it for at this point is the the thasmin of it all. Like, I'm not here for an overarching plot. I'm not here to see a final confrontation with Tecteun, because the woman who ruined the Doctor's life was sort of killed really unceremoniously. I'm not here to see how the Sea Devils have ramped up the stakes because the Sea Devils didn't do anything with stakes and they didn't create any stakes. And there's nothing going into this finale that makes me feel final. This is... It's such a disappointment. I think, in summary, this... Had this been like a throwaway episode in the middle of a season, um, it still would have been unremarkable, but it wouldn't have been like so so viscerally disappointing. This was a penultimate episode of an era. Not just of the season, of the era. And it, it fundamentally failed to do the things that a penultimate episode is supposed to do. And like penultimate episodes don't have to be connected via plot to the finale it's like i'm thinking of like waters of mars where like the only character in that episode that returns for uh david tennant's regeneration special is david tennant and i guess the ood who appears right at the end but that whole special is setting up the the doctor's you know arc of of its it's his low point. And it's cementing where he is in the journey. The Doctor is not cemented anywhere in her journey right now. Yeah, this this very much just felt like another episode. And I also think, you know, you're, you're in for a major problem when the, the, the element of the episode that is the thing that generates the most conversation isn't actually part of the episode. Like, all anybody wants to talk about is the 30 second trailer at the end of the episode and all of the incredible exciting things that are supposedly gonna happen which uh which i mean i guess segues us into talking about that trailer 
I am excited for certain things, but trying to tamper that excitement because I'm not necessarily confident that the things I am excited for will be executed very well. And I don't mean I don't mean to like be approaching an episode with negativity, but it's just there's so much that they are teasing for this episode that it feels like there isn't a way for every single aspect of it to be perfectly executed. It feels like something is going to you know, slip between the cracks some. And something always always is slipped through the cracks. Whenever you have something that is wrapping up in a final special, it you always miss stuff. And that's par for the course, and you should expect that. But also, there's a lot of stuff in the trailer that you don't want to be missed. I mean, I am not a big classic Who buff the way that Michael is. I don't know much about Classic Who, but I know who Ace is. Everybody knows who Ace is. Ace, 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 Ace. Ace is one of the most popular of the Classic Who companions, and For she's coming good back. reason. Uh, Ace is iconic. Um, you know, it's it's hard not to be iconic when you uh, take a baseball bat and hit a Dalek with it. You know, it's really hard not to be iconic when that is something you do. I want to beat a, a Dalek with a baseball bat. It's amazing. I So there's a lot of like really exciting things to talk about with, with the trailer. But I, I have kind of one – negative is a strong word, but concern, I guess, is, is the better word. And that is it feels like a lot of this stuff that they are teasing uh, doesn't – it feels like it's not relevant to the 13th Doctor. It's like – emotional journey it, it's difficult to understand like why tegan and ace need to be there when this is a regeneration special that should be about you know this doctor's life coming to an end and these are characters this doctor has never met outside of a book for ace and similarly you know you've got all the stuff with with Kate, and that's presumably going to get wrapped up in this episode as well. And Vinder's back, and a bunch of monsters are back, and the Master's there. There are some Cybermen, I think. Yeah. It's not only some some Cybermen, the, the, the lone Cyberman is back. It It is really a, a kitchen sink situation that is happening. Which means there's just too much. It's going to either... You're going to end up with it either completely detracting from... The celebration of the centenary of the BBC, or it's completely distracting from the Doctor regenerating, which is the whole point of the thing. Yeah, I, I, I'm willing to keep an open mind, because I think, I mean, first of all, I love this master. I'm very happy he's back. I'm very happy everybody's back. I'm so happy. Anytime Kate shows up on my screen, I get excited. More Kate. But I mean, if we couldn't have Tecteun as a villain, this master is an acceptable alternative. He's a fantastic master. Yeah. Well, and, and it's just like, in terms of her character arc, it absolutely makes sense to bring him back for her regeneration because he is the one who set her on this path 
The entire journey that she's been on. Yeah. So it makes sense for him to be there at the end. You just kind of also wish that, you know, someone like Tiktaeun would also be there at the end. Um, or, or would have gotten maybe more of a conclusion for both characters than she did. I just think it would be very satisfying to be able to really confront the person who inflicted that much trauma upon you. Yeah. Whether or not you can remember the trauma, it was still inflicted upon you. So I'm I'm excited for them. There's also a rumor about kind of how Tegan and Ace are involved. Yes, there is a very fun rumor. It is completely, completely unsubstantiated. But Michael and I both love this. Um, I will be legitimately disappointed if this is not at least a little true. And that there is some kind of a support group for the Doctor's past companions. And Tegan and Ace are a part of it. I've seen a rumor that suggests there will be some other ones, but there'll be like very like small cameos. The, the, a few other uh, older companions who are still on Earth. I also wouldn't be surprised if this is how Graham gets involved. Because despite Graham not being confirmed in the episode, he was spotted on location filming with... In particular, John Bishop, but with John Bishop and the TARDIS, he's in the episode. They're just not saying so yet. But there's no real other reason for, from as far as we know, there is no reason for Ace and Tegan to know each other. Because they're, they were completely different doctors. I mean, one was three and one was six, if I remember. It was five and seven, but yeah. Five and seven, okay. Yeah. So that stands to reason that as social media grows in the 21st century and everybody goes back to find all their high school friends or the friends they met at sleepaway camp, she's like, hmm, I wonder who else has been my in, in my situation. Yeah. It's um, it's kind of a – it's it, it makes me sad that uh, Elizabeth Sladen uh, unfortunately oh, passed away so yeah. long ago because you just know she'd have she been part be of this kind of a group. Honestly, I think Freema, Freema Ageman – would probably be open to doing that if, as well. If she had time in her schedule. If she she's had time. busy. Oh, she's packed. She's about to get proposed to on New Amsterdam. Oh, spoilers for people who watch New Amsterdam. I didn't say, I didn't say who was proposing to her. Fair enough. So for people like Maggie, you might be curious as to who Tegan and Ace are. And, and perhaps what stories might be, make for good watching before... You know, the, the the centenary special airs. And I, who, to be clear, am only halfway through the fourth Doctor's era in my classic Who Watch, have compiled a nice list that I found on the internet of stories that would probably be good to watch. And it's mostly, so for Tegan, it is her first story and her last story, which are Logopolis and Resurrection of the Daleks. But then there's one, and I have actually seen this middle one. It's called Kinda, and it's really weird. And I don't want to spoil anything, but she, and it's been a long time since I've seen it. There's a giant, like, snake thing as the monster, and it has psychic powers. And Tegan is kind of the, like, the central companion in that. And it's it's kind of fun. And it's probably a good... uh representation of who she is as a companion and then i have quite a list for ace because i have seen some of her episodes i have her first appearance which is dragonfire 
I have Remembrance of the Daleks, which is the one where she uh, hits a Dalek with a baseball bat. Um, I have Battlefield, which, if memory serves, is one of the last times that Brigadier Lethbridge Stewart appears. Um, and then I have The Curse of Fenric, which is also a fan favorite. Uh, and and uh, ties into a 13th Doctor book that came out a couple years ago that was written by Sophie Aldred, who is the actress who plays Ace. And it is a book where 13 and Ace meet. This is while 13 is still traveling with uh, Ryan, Graham, and Yaz as a group. And a big theme of that book is how the companions deal with life after the Doctor. Ace and Ace kind of bonds with Yaz over the idea that, you know, your travels with the Doctor end someday. And that the Doctor is sometimes a very shady figure. And I'm I, I'm curious to see how much of that makes its way into the special, because I feel like it must. <laughs> I think it's very interesting that they're making a definitive decision with however the special plays out. They're fully establishing those extra canonical books as either completely extra canonical or as supplemental material. They they are making a decision. And it's kind of sad because they're – from what we know about this centenary episode and – what I know about the book because I've read it, the two cannot coexist because both stories reference the fact that Ace has not seen the Doctor in decades. Um, and it's really sad because I think that book is one of the best 13th Doctor stories, period. Which also, I, I have a whole list of things that <laughs> I wrote that... Uh, Maggie does not dabble in the expanded universe material the way that I do. And I, I, I routinely tell her how I feel that a lot of the 13th Doctor stuff that isn't on the show is better than what is on the show. And some of it definitely sounds better. And, and I felt that considering both of us had such, you know, not positive feelings towards most of this episode that it might be nice to recommend a few other 13th doctor stories that you know people might not be aware of because they're you know extra canonical and i have just a couple uh there's the at childhood's end is the the book featuring ace and 13 which is just a delight it's so good um titan comics is the current publisher of the Doctor Who comics, and all of their 13th Doctor stories are great. But there is one in particular that I think is very good for people who maybe felt this episode didn't have enough pirates in it. And it is an arc that is called Old Friends, and it is where the 13th Doctor and and Yaz, Graham, and Ryan meet the Corsair, who is that Time Lord that's mentioned in The Doctor's Wife? It's, that's the Time Lord who uh, made the, the cube that Eleven finds that sends him on that journey. Into the pocket universe. Correct. And the Corsair in this uh, regeneration is also a woman. And her TARDIS takes the shape 
of a pirate ship. And so she literally flies around the universe in a giant pirate ship. And her and the Doctor have a... It's not frenemies necessarily, but it's it's a um it's a spicy friendship. And it's it is an absolute delight. And if you found yourself wishing there were more pirate shenanigans in this episode, run to wherever you can find the comic books and buy old friends. It's fantastic. And then there are two more things, both of which are written by Juno Dawson who is just a, a very, very great Doctor Who writer. Uh, she wrote a book that came out when Season 11 started. It was one of the first kind of 13th Doctor stories because they came out a couple of weeks into the run. It's called The Good Doctor. And the general premise is that the TARDIS team visits this planet, prevents, I think it was like a civil war or something, and then leave. But Ryan has left his phone behind, and so they have to go back. But, of course, the TARDIS doesn't go back to the right time and ends up several centuries in the future where they have built a religion upon the Doctor, except they think the Doctor was Graham. And it kind of just explores the idea of the Doctor as a meta character. You know, what kind of an influence does the Doctor leave on the people she interacts with? That's very 11 for a 13 story. It is, which is probably why it's no surprise that I adore it, because I, I adore those kind of meta explorations of the Doctor, which is also kind of what's happening in the current Doctor Who Redacted podcast, which is also being headwritten by Juno Dawson. She's not writing every episode, but she is kind of spearheading it. And Maggie has actually listened to this. I have, Yes. Um, I think it's great. I think it's, I mean, it's still early days. We've They've only released one episode out of 10. But it's very promising so far. And it's, it's three women in their late 20s in London. Well, they're, it, they don't specify. I know Chloe's in London. And they've all come from sort of different backgrounds. They all met in college before they all collectively dropped out of college. And they find these conspiracy nuts on the internet and they're like we're gonna join them and make a podcast like a true crime exploration podcast about this suspicious blue box that shows up everywhere and along the way it's sort of revealed that something is going on with the doctor that has people forgetting that they met the doctor and is also potentially redacting her friends from existing. Possibly killing them. And so these these three women are going to end up, you know, pulled into this and will presumably have to get to the bottom of what's going on. And it seems very fun. It seems like it's got some elements of podcasts that you like in general if you listen to audio drama podcasts i mean there's the whole true crime aspect of it you've got the forgetting bit gives me a lot of like night veil vibes yeah it's definitely making good use of its medium and it knows what it is and what it wants to be and is thriving in it so far and it's also 
the thing that I thought was the most impressive is how immediately, like, well-rounded the characters are without feeling... They all felt very real to me very quickly. And that that's really because of the dialogue and because of there's, like, the ability to have this punchy banter between these people who've been friends for so long. Yeah. And it's just, it's really... It's nice. The writing, the writers do an incredible job at setting up that dialogue so it doesn't feel like you're slogging through introductions. Yeah, it's, it's, they just hit the ground running. These characters have a shared past that kind of gradually gets revealed over the first episode, but it's very much like we're three people making a podcast about the doctor and we're going to talk about the first episode deals with the adipose industry stuff and it's it's such it's very fun tying in such an it feels weird to say this but it, such an old story in now but it's 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 just very fun so far and i think it hits a similar kind of chord of the doctor's influence on the world it 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 if you if you read the good doctor you'll immediately recognize that this is like this a very similar take on the character from the same author and it has sort of elements of the pilot of doctor who of the of new who which like the good parts of the pilot of yeah. new who where rose is doing research and trying to figure out who the doctor is yeah. and she finds all of these weird blogs and photos and maybe this is a me thing but there's something so fun about in-universe like found footage this isn't found footage but it's it's a a conspiracy podcast that exists within the doctor who universe and and i don't know i I've, i always like you know stories like that where they they take a specific format and use that format to tell a story about the characters of a universe set within that universe it's it's nice to see that as much as we see the doctor visiting earth and we know things like that the doctor is technically the president of earth it's nice to see on such a smaller scale the fact that there is influence you know humans are smart curious people there there's a reason the doctor likes them and they're obviously going to notice they're going to take notice and they're going to have thoughts and ideas and the fact that there's a reddit thread about this is just delightful it's it's delightful it's 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 human and it's humanity and so i think for anybody who is just really itching for some doctor who right now that's going for the next nine weeks it is free it's on the BBC Sounds website, which is not geo-restricted. You can listen to it from anywhere in the world. And I, I'm i just really excited to see where it goes. And, you know, maybe we'll come back in nine weeks and talk about how it ended. Well, I know we are definitely going to revisit it with our next episode. because, in ad- And in addition to talking about that, we are actually going to be talking about a new Doctor Who comic being released called Empire of the Wolf. Yes. Uh, that we will be returning next month to talk about that because that is when the collected, like the, the, the trade paperback of the arc comes out. So we will be returning then to kind of help bridge the gap between now and 
uh, Jodie Whittaker's farewell special in the fall. And we may or may not have other fun, exciting adventures coming up. You never know. There's so much Doctor Who to explore. And what better time to explore it than when the show is off the air? And we hope you will join us and explore with us. Until then, thank you so much for listening and have a wonderful day.